0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, a host on the channel, and today we'll be talking to James L. Nolan, Jr. about his new book, Atomic Doctors, Conscience and Complicity at the Dawn of the Nuclear Age. Jim, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, I, you know, I grew, up, I grew up in Southern California. Um, I did my undergraduate work at UC Davis in California, and then I did my graduate work and my doctoral work at the University of Virginia in sociology. And, um, and while I was at uh, UVA, I, I, I encountered for the first time the work of the French sociologist Jacques Ellul and his writings were important in my thinking about technology and certainly informed some of the analysis in this book, Atomic Doctors.
1: Well, so the story of how you came to write this book is pretty fascinating. Um, Can you tell our audiences about it?
0: Yes, of course. So about eight years ago, after my dad had passed away, uh, my mom came and visited our home uh, here in Williamstown, Massachusetts. And um, she brought with her a box of materials that no one in the family, except my dad, even knew existed. Um, and I began to look through the materials, and, and I was, you know, surprised by what I found. It, it really contained a treasure trove of information about my my grandfather's role on the Manhattan Project, the top secret military project that built the first atom bomb. And it had in it um, photos and correspondence and. Correspondence with Robert Oppenheimer, artifacts, his written recollections of various parts of his unique journey uh, through the new early nuclear age, and um, and a lot of the you know his military papers and so forth, and a lot of it was you know stamped secret or top secret, and and it was just an incredible um, uh, kind of collection of materials about the early nuclear age, none of which have ever, ever been made public. Um, and I thought, this is fascinating. And, and it was really the beginning of my own journey into the Atomic Age. And it led to my visits to a number of archives, both in the United States and in Japan, um, exploring further uh, my grandfather's role as, um, as a physician uh, on the Manhattan Project, as well as um, the physicians he worked with um, and their role. So thus the title for the book, Atomic Doctors. It really looks in particular at the role of the doctors um, um, on, on the Manhattan Project and then into the early nuclear age.
1: I, I wonder if you could just back up a little bit um, and, and give us some essential background for understanding the story. So what was the Manhattan Project? What role did it play in World War II? And, and what's the kind of dominant historical narrative about it?
0: Okay, so the, the Manhattan Project was was the secret project um, headed by um, Leslie Groves? She was a military head. And then the scientific head was um, Robert Oppenheimer. And it was a secret project that, that was first commissioned by um, uh, Roosevelt to build the bomb. And um, it cost something like in 1945 dollars, um, you know, two billion dollars was spent on it. It was a huge project. And um, Los Alamos was a place where they, where the, phys- the physicists came together to um, uh, um, build the bomb, to design it, and to test it, and, and so forth. Um, and um, uh, so so my grandfather was invited in the very early years uh, of the project in, in early 1943 um, to be the, um, the head physician at the hospital in Los Alamos. And part of Oppenheimer's thinking was that if he had you know, medical facilities in place and good medical care that would help him in his efforts to recruit top physicists to the project. So that's why my grandfather was there and why he was one of the first, um, uh, recruits to Los Alamos. And he had, he was an OBGYN with training in radiology. So it made a lot of sense for him to be there. He had the, he had the kind of background, um, that, that would, um, that would make sense. Um, in terms of, um, Uh, the dominant narrative about the the use of the bomb. I mean, within, you know, kind of historical accounts of World War II and of of the history of the use of, you know, nuclear weapons, um, there are a couple narratives. I mean, there's the dominant or official narrative, as it's sometimes called, that that basically argued that um, the bomb was necessary, that it ended the war, and that it saved American lives and that it it, um, avoided uh, Americans from having to engage in a costly land invasion that would have cost hundreds of thousands of American and even Japanese lives. Um, The counter-narrative gives more attention to the the destruction on the ground in Japan in particular. It gives much more attention to the effects of radiation, the long-term effects of radiation. Um, Part of the counter-narrative uh, um was also to argue that a, a land invasion wasn't necessary that there was evidence that uh, japan was willing to negotiate a surrender in in the days and weeks before the dropping of the bombs and it's even argued by some that the dropping of the bomb had more to do with russia than it did with japan that is that there were it was in, in a certain sense the first strike in the emerging cold war rather than the than simply the final strike at, at, at the end of the of the World War II. Um, so, so th- th- that's a debate uh, you know that goes on that continues to go on the, the kind of the, the counter narrative and the and the official narrative um, and you know what, what I look at in particular is the the, the largely untold story uh, about the role of the doctors on the project and what's interesting about the doctors is they they knew more than most about radiation and the effects of radiation. And as I mentioned, you know, the counter narrative uh, gives a lot more attention to the, to the biological effects of, um, of the radiation hazards that follow uh, a nuclear detonation.
1: And so you, you mentioned in the book that there has been a lot of work on um, sort of scientists versus military officials. Um, and and their roles in this story. How how do doctors, how how, how do the doctors differ from the scientists, and what's been written about them?
0: Yes. So, in Los Alamos, you had basically three communities. You had the the military officers, and you had the scientists, and and then you had the much smaller community of community of medical doctors, um, who were really not part of either of the other two communities. Um, the scientists were primarily concerned with building a bomb i mean mean, that is can we split the atom to um release this energy It was kind of a scientific goal and 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 scientific discovery was a a major motivation whereas for the military they wanted a bomb for combat purposes um so so there was then there's a lot that a lot has been written about the tensions between the scientists in the military, they both they both had um, high levels of disregard for the other. <laughs> um, in particular, the scientists didn't really like Leslie Groves. They didn't like the emphasis on security and the, the kind of surveillance that went on, and um, and the kind of hierarchical nature of military um, uh, authority and so forth. And the scientists were more accustomed to kind of seminars and symposia and and having these kind of conversations and sharing of information and so forth. So they clashed with one another. And the the doctors were, 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 again, in in certain senses, not part of either of those communities. And and yet they were the ones who were both tasked with taking care of the the health needs of of members of both communities. And also they had an important amount of knowledge about, about radiation and the effects of radiation. Um, The the three main doctors that I look at in the book, uh, my grandfather, James F. Nolan, but then also Louis Hempelman and and Stafford Warren, were all all had training in radiology. And and so that that was an important part of of the equation. And and given that the scientists were primarily concerned with scientific discovery, can we do this? And, And the military was concerned about creating a weapon for the purposes of combat, um, they often really weren't concerned about um, radiation hazards. As my grandfather put it, radiation hazards were entirely secondary. Um, And and so when the doctors raised concerns about the effects of radiation, they were often ignored or what they said was uh, um, downplayed and not regarded as as seriously um, as um, the doctors would have hoped.
1: So, James Nolan is is really um, our guide through this history, and he sort of he he winds up on the site of some pretty important um, historical events. Can you um, can you kind of take us through the the book from his point of view? So, um, so he, you know how is he involved in the Trinity test? How is he involved in finally taking you know in, in taking the bomb? To Japan, um, how is how how does his research career evolve after the you know after the war? Um, just t- uh, tell us um, the the story that that came to you in this box that you had to sort of weave together.
0: Yes, sure. So yeah, as, as I say in the book, he serves as kind of my my virtual. He takes me through a Divine Comedy of sorts, and 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 really the book uses him as a as a prism to, to kind of walk through the early nu- early nuclear age and look around and um, and and his was a very unusual and unique role. As I mentioned, he was the post surgeon in Los Alamos, and and really what he was primarily concerned with in the early early months was delivering the many babies who were born on on the hill, of which there were quite a few. In the, in the first year alone, something like eighty babies were born in in, uh, in Los Alamos. Um, but then eventually he was pulled over to what was called the health group and the health group was uh, uh, led by Louis Hempelman, who was a classmate a medical school classmate of my grandfather's and he was and, and the and the health group was really concerned about kind of radiation safety in the lab with people you know the people who were working with plutonium and uranium these kind of toxic materials and when, when he moved over to the health group in, in early 1945 he, his primarily his primary role became um uh, helping to establish the, the, the safety and evacuation procedures for the Trinity test. Now the Trinity test was the first bomb to be exploded in human history. And it was, um, exploded in the, um, Alamogorda desert, um, Alamogorda bombing range in the New Mexico desert. And, um, and, and again, he, his task was to kind of, um, uh, to take care of, you know, set up the evacuation procedures and and be concerned about the safety of the um, the military working at the Trinity site. Um, and, and, and kind of the most famous episode that my grandfather was involved in, in in this particular chapter of the early nuclear age was that he went, because of their concerns about the potential radiation fallout from the bomb, he um, put together with a a report with the other doctors and with two sympathetic scientists and he traveled to oak ridge tennessee to confront leslie groves about their concerns about potential fallout um from the trinity test and it's an it's an episode that's actually been captured in the opera called dr atomic and 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 um, my grandfather met with groves gave him the report he was made to sit outside groves's office groves read the report and then eventually um, called Nolan in and, and said to him, what are you some kind of Hearst propagandist? And as my grandfather interpreted it, that it meant that he was primarily concerned with secrecy, secrecy and security. And if we were to, you know, implement this evacuation plan, it would, um, uh, lead to information about the, the bomb leaking out. And he didn't want that. Um, so eventually Groves, um, uh, allowed for some of their plans to be put into place he wasn't enthusiastic about it but he did allow some to go forward and and again my grandfather was was responsible for that for setting up the safety and evacuation procedures at the trinity test the trinity test took place on july 16th 1945 two days prior to the test my grandfather actually left new mexico and he left new mexico because he was asked to to escort the hiroshima bomb from los alamos to tinian island um the the bomb was nicknamed Little Boy, so he escorted little boy with um uh, um a military officer named Robert Furman, who was one of Leslie Grove's top aides, and they literally carried the bomb from Los Alamos oh, they carried the core uranium, the uranium two thirty five from los alamos um they they took a plane from Albuquerque to San Francisco. In San Francisco, the bomb was put aboard the um, USS Indianapolis, which is an interesting part of the whole story. Um, um, and they uh, eventually uh, uh, took the cargo off the Indianapolis. Uh, the cargo was estimated to cost $300 billion at the time. It was the only processed uranium um, in the world. Um, and, uh, and it was on Tinian Island that the final assembly of the bomb took place and that it was put aboard the Enola Gay and, and then eventually... Uh, took its fateful journey from um, Tinian Island uh, to Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. Um, So my grandfather was on Tinian Island. Um, He was there for the assembly of the bomb. He continued to play a kind of medical role. Uh, He examined the crew of the Enola Gay when they came back. He did a medical examination of the entire crew when they returned from Hiroshima. And then um, he, with a group of three others, conspired to go into Japan, um, to to look at the the consequences of the bombing, um, and uh, whether or not th- their their little group was was the original source f- for the Joint Commission. Eventually, Leslie Groves, in fact, put in place um, uh, an effort to go into Japan to assess the damages in both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And my grandfather was part of that group, so he actually landed. In, outside of Tokyo um, on um, September 5th 1945 just a few days after the official surrender aboard the USS Missouri and um, and then on um, September 9th he was part of the very first group of, of Americans uh, officials to, American officials to walk into Hiroshima and to look at the damage um, so he spent about five weeks, in Japan, um, in both Hiroshima and Nagasaki, spent time in Tokyo and, um, and the purpose of that, well, the purpose of that was, um, ostensibly to, to test the, um, to measure the effects of radiation. Um, Leslie Groves was concerned about reports coming out of ongoing radiation poisoning. And so part of it was a a kind of a PR effort to, um, to find out that there was not <laughs> residual radiation. Um, and so, so that was part of what they did. Um, but what they saw in Japan was, was, um, was horrifying. I mean, the devastation was, was, um, um, as, as my grandfather himself put it, was, 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 diff- was almost impossible to describe, uh, unimaginable. Um, uh, the Hibakusha, the victims of the bomb were still dying, um, from both radiation exposure, as well as the the kind of injuries from the heat and blast of the bomb. Um, and, and, and again, it was, it was what, what he saw was, um, was beyond words. And in fact, it really was, he never talked about, he never talked about what he saw in Japan. Um, and, uh, um, uh, his his time in Japan, uh, um, again, it lasted about five weeks, and then he returned to Los Alamos, and he actually took over from Louis Hempelman to, to head up the health group for a short time uh, before he got out of the military um, and uh, re- returned to medical practice, which he uh, desperately wanted to do. He was very keen to get out of the military and go back to being a doctor. However, in this interim period, he did participate in... Um, the ongoing testing of bombs in the Marshall Islands. So he was he was um, at Bikini, and and at, at Wee atolls where we the the United States tested five more bombs. So two bombs at Bikini, and then three bombs at and in the summers of 1946 and 1948. And he participated in those as a radiation safety monitor. Um, um, and then that really constituted the end. Of his involvement, uh, direct involvement with nuclear weapons, and and after that he moved. Um, well, he moved for a short time back to St. Louis, and then ultimately to Los Angeles, uh, where he was a, um, a gynecological oncologist, and he spent the rest of his career actually treating um, uh, cancer patients and, and using different forms of, of uh, radiation to treat uh, cancer patients.
1: Do we have any sense of his? Um... His motivation, because you say he never spoke about it again, you know, it's it, it seems I, I I don't it seems that not that not that many people maybe who were in involved in in the bomb got to see the effects of it firsthand, and then that he would go on and continue doing more testing. I I mean, just um, I don't can you speculate at all about um, how he felt about his role in in history?
0: Yeah. Well, he was very quiet about it and um, I I, I was my grandfather passed away in 1983 Um, I was I I was 20 years old I I never once remember talking to him about it, so it was something that, that he was very quiet about and I think there are several reasons for that one is that the notion of secrecy was, was emphasized over and over again. So among the papers that I have are papers where he ha- has to sign and, um, and, and, and agree that he will never talk about this. Um, and, he, and he had to do that more than once. I mean, it was something that they emphasized over and over again, that, um, that this was top secret, that, that no one was to know about this. And um, so I think that was part of it. It was beat into them this idea that this was this was secret and it was not to be discussed. I also think, and and other members of my family who I interviewed for the book, um, think that he was very troubled by what he saw. He was disturbed by it. Um, and I think that is another reason he didn't talk about it. It was not something that he boasted about, about or was proud of at all. In fact, when people would ask him about you know, people who knew about, and we knew about, I mean, we generally knew that he was, you know, he played a role in the Manhattan project, but when asked about it, he would say, I, I, I just delivered the babies. You know that's what he would say. I mean, that was a, that, it seems to me that was the one thing he could be proud of in terms of, of his, uh, his role. So uh, for those reasons, I think that he, he was quiet about it. And, and, and I also think that he genuinely wanted to get away from it and, um, and, and, and use the the technology uh, in his view for the good that is in in the in the realm of medical care
1: so so the subtitle of the book is um conscience and complicity at the dawn of the nuclear age Um, and i i wondered if you could talk about um this concept of uh, technological determinism and then uh, how does that relate to the to the conscience and complicity that your grandfather might have experienced
0: yeah so so in terms of conscience and complicity i mean um, th- w- what i find in looking at the doctors is a pattern of of what i um i call caution cooptation and complicity and so caution or even conscience has to do with the notion that they really did repeatedly warned the military about radiation exposure. They did it at Trinity. They did it before Japan. They did it out in, in the Marshall Islands. Um, they, they repeatedly said, you know, this is something we need to worry about. This is dangerous. We need to be concerned about it. And again, the, the pattern was that the military often ignored them and and downplayed their warnings. And in fact, sometimes outright um, distorted what they said. When, when, when Leslie Groves went and testified before uh, Congress after the war, um, in November or December of 1945, um, you know, he he downplayed what the doctors had reported to him about what they found in Japan. I mean, it was just really uh, a, a straight out, you know, a, a misrepresentation of what they had said. In fact, he went so far as to say, "The doctors tell me that that um, you know, not very many people died from radiation exposure, and that, that the few who did." Um, that it was, and, and this is a direct quote, a very pleasant, w- a pleasant way to die. That's what he said to Congress. He reported that the doctors had told him that it was a pleasant way to die. Those who were dying, and that was just, that was just. No one reported. The doctors never said that, and the doctors knew that in fact it was a very agonizing and painful way to die. Um, so, so this is what I mean about that. They did offer warnings. The the, the military often pushed back, or, or distorted, or downplayed what they said. But then the doctors were put in this difficult position. Um, you know, their roles were co-opted. But then at times they actually became complicit. That is, that they themselves participated in um, the cover-up or hiding of, of the actual effects of radiation exposure. Um, and the doctors were even involved in um, um, something that Eileen Wilson has written about um, in her book *The Plutonium Files*, where they actually injected. Uh, traces of plutonium in patients at several hospitals around the country in order to, um, examine the, the, the effects of, radi- of radiation uh, uh, on the human body. Um, and they did this without the patient's uh, knowledge or consent. Um, and it's, you know, it, it, it was really, you know, uh, um, an unethical <laughs> and, and, um, and dangerous and very much a violation of the oath that doctors t- take, you know, first do no harm. Um, so so in, in, in many ways, I, I think that um, that's an example of, of complicity, where they ultimately became complicit. And in terms of technological determinism, that really comes from Jacques Ellul, and, and that's the idea that, that in our technological age, he writes about this in his book, The Technological Society. That once a technology is discovered, it's applied, and it kind of takes on a life of its own, and it's difficult to resist. And uh, you know, a number of the physicists on the project talked about the, the kind of momentum of the project, such that you know, even after Germany surrendered, uh, a number of them look back and say, "Well, why didn't I stop? You know, I, that, I I was involved in this because we were concerned that Hitler would get a bomb before we would, and yet when that when that concern ended, they kept." working. And in fact, by many accounts, they worked with, with greater intensity than ever before. And they look back and they say, why? why? Why did I carry on? And, and, and in some accounts, it really, it, they really point to this idea of the kind of momentum of the project, a kind of technological momentum, to use um, Thomas Hughes' term. Um, Leslie Groves uh, once said of, um, of Truman that he actually never made a choice to, um, to drop the bomb that he was like a little boy on a toboggan. That is, when he came in to to the presidency after Roosevelt died, um, he didn't know anything about the Manhattan Project uh, uh, before then. And um, and that he was, once he entered into that role, he was just carried on, carried forward, if you will, by the momentum of the project. And I think that's a nice illustration, if you will, of what Elul means uh, by technological determinism.
1: And hold on, I'm, I'm looking for a part in your book right now um, you You talk about uh, technological determinism coming in a couple different forms, so optimistic and pessimistic. What you've described sounds very pessimistic to me. Um, <laughs> I wondered if you you could talk a, a little bit more about um about what you mean by that um and and technological determinism as a driving historical force
0: right um. So, so, do you want me to talk about the differences between optimistic and pessimistic technological terms? Yes, yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah. So, so, yeah. Some some of the examples I I just gave were, were more uh, pessimistic, right? Where people look back and 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 they they see that they were determined, but don't um, uh, but but you know, kind of regret that they were determined in that way. Whereas you have others who um, who, you know, people like Ray Kurzweil, for example, who who celebrate um, the the kind of technological innovations that are driving us today and and, and see it as a good thing and and see the resistance, um, any kind of resistance as futile. In fact, both optimistic and pessimistic technological determinists um, see resistance as largely futile, that that, that we're not not going to be able to resist, that technology um, just has this kind of force that, that, um, that that carries us forward. And, um, uh, and yet the, 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 um, you know, the the pessimistic uh, uh, technological determinists regret this and the, the the optimists celebrate it.
1: It, It's all, I mean, well, I guess determinism that's, that's, what it is that that's a power greater than yourself. That's sort of determining the course of your fate or the course of history. Um, you note at various points in the book, um, the figurative language that scientists, the doctors, the government officials were using to talk about the atom bomb. Um, and you know, language that portrays the bomb as being religious, transcendent, even healing, which seems counterintuitive to say the least yeah. um why why did you want your readers to, to take note of this language that the historical actors in your book were using
0: yes um so uh it's interesting isn't it i mean the the, the number of kind of religious references are are, are, are fascinating i mean the, the trinity test for example that's the trinity comes from you know the the trinitarian god of christian theology Uh Robert Oppenheimer was reportedly reading John Donne poetry at the time and came up with that. Um, you know, batter my heart, three-person God. It comes from one of the sonnets. So, so um, the you know, the Tinian Islands um, um, military codename was Papacy and you know, things like this. It's really very interesting. Um, and and Oppenheimer famously said or famously recalled <laughs> after witnessing the Trinity test and the power of it, um, citing the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu scriptures, and he remembers thinking, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. And and there's a certain sense in which he looked at the power of the bomb and and realized that what they had participated in was something um, like playing God, if you will. And, and, and also in the Reflections, such as those of Oppenheimer after the war, um, th- th- that was a kind of, and sometimes at least, a kind of regret. You know, we scientists have known sin, he said. And, and there's a certain sense in which the regret includes, um, perhaps, this notion of going, uh, beyond, going to a place we shouldn't go. <laughs> that is, that there are certain kinds of technological innovations um, that perhaps we shouldn't participate in. And, and a kind of with, with the benefit of looking at the, the consequences of the technological innovation, a kind of informed regret about what, um, what they had participated in. And I think you know, part of what I do also in the book, um, in the penultimate chapter, is to look at the lessons from the Manhattan tro- Project on, on this point and apply it to a lot of the new and emerging technologies and, and also kind of raise the questions like, is this really a place that we should go? And are we thinking about the long-term consequences of the uses of these technologies? And are we also perhaps, um, again, a lesson from the Manhattan Project, concerned about this technology taking on a life of its own and becoming de- deterministic in ways that we, that we as humans lose control of it?
1: I'd love it if you could say a little bit more about that, about what the the relevance of um, of the story of the dawn of the nuclear age might might what relevance might this have to us now, and and why why share your grandfather's story now, other than well, you know, it's a wonderful discovery and it's a fascinating story, but um, what does it mean to be interpreting it at this particular moment in time?
0: Yeah, well, I mean th- th- that the. <laughs> what you said, there is an important part of it. I mean, I, I, I mean, w- one of the reasons I tell the story now is because it's a story that uh, became available to me um, uh, as a consequence of um, my mom bringing me that box of materials. Um, however, you know, uh, um, I think uh, it is incredible that the story of the Manhattan Project, the story of the, the invention and the use of Of the bomb, and then of course, all that followed that the Cold War, the development of nuclear weapons, a a, a kind of situation that continues to affect us today um, is very important and and relevant to understanding technological innovation in a broader sense. Um, There's a wonderful article written by Bill Joy in um, Wired Magazine in 2000 um, titled Why the Future Doesn't Need Us. And in that article, Joy looks at the Manhattan Project, looks at what happened there. And then he looks at kind of new and emerging technologies in the areas of of, of robotics and nanotechnology and um, um, artificial intelligence um, and and so forth. And, And he sees the same patterns at play today. That is, you have the kind of intoxication of scientific innovation and this idea of, you know, can we do this and, um, and, and the, the kind of investment in this scientific discovery. And he thinks, you know, in the same way that you can look back and look at the physicists and look at their language uh, after the Manhattan Project, he sees the same sort of, uh, of danger of people looking back and say, we didn't think about the long-term consequences. We were caught up in scientific discovery and not concerned about what might be the applications of these technologies. And also he points to the problem of losing control. That we have these kind of innovations that once applied kind of take on a life of its own and, um, and, we, and we lose control of it. And it begins to determine us rather than uh, um, it being a tool that we use um, for you know, uh, uh, um, useful human purposes.
1: Well, Jim, I, I said to you before we started recording that um, one of the things I, I admire most about your career is how each of your books have, have covered really seemingly um, quite disparate topics. So from drug courts to Alexis de Tocqueville to you know, the dawn of the nuclear age. So I, I wondered um, if you could tell us a little bit about what do you see as the through line in your work and what you are working on next?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, uh, just, just, uh, if I can conclude on, I, I, I ha- happy to talk about where I'm going with sure. the next project, but just a, a word on, um, the, the, the very last, uh, chapter, which is 1983. Um, and, and it was, it was a critical and important year and, and, um, and it was the year that the, 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 um, you know, we have over 60,000 nuclear weapons now throughout the world. It's the year that Ronald Reagan first used the term uh, evil empire to refer to the Soviet Union. You know, the, the Cold War is very much uh, in play. Um, um, it was the year that, uh, that uh, the, um, uh, the, the day after was broadcast, the most watched TV movie uh, of all time at the time. Um, but it was also the year when the, the physicists went back to Los Alamos um, to have a reunion. It was the 40th anniversary of the start of the Manhattan Project, 1983. And many of the physicists there expressed regret about what they had done. Israel Rabi referred to Los Alamos and said, this, this place is an abomination. It should have been destroyed at least 30 years ago. Hans Bette said, we did a terrible thing here. Victor Weisskopf gave a lecture in which he said, we meant so well, but look what we've done. You know, this, this kind of regret. And, um, and and to my, you know, on my grandfather, you know, he attended that. He attended that, that uh, um, reunion. It was just a few months before he passed away, actually. And, um, and Peter Wyden's uh, book about the, the atomic bomb, he covers that reunion. And he refers to Captain James F. Nolan as, as the alumni, the, the, the most lionized alumni in attendance. Um, and, and, and what I like about that is, is, is it fits with his own description of his work. I delivered the babies and, 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 and Wyden observes that he was the most lionized alumni because of the role that he did in delivering all the children on the hill during the war. Um, and, and I think that's a, a kind of a fitting, uh, it's fitting that, that, that that's acknowledged and it's also fitting that, and, and that that's the one thing that they could actually celebrate because they were really regret, they express a lot of regret about the technology that they developed. So, so it was very fascinating to follow my grandfather's journey and and um, and to, to learn a great deal about the early nuclear age and in the process of, of researching the book I went to um, I went to Japan and spent time in Nagasaki and Hiroshima and I came very intrigued about the story in Nagasaki the story of of, of what happened there um, you know it was the second bomb it's it doesn't get as much attention as Hiroshima it was a very unique place it wasn't even the primary Target Kokura was the primary target, um, and the only reason it wasn't bombed is because of of, of cloud covering. And then the, the the plane went over to Nagasaki, and then the way that the the, the people in Nagasaki responded um, is is fascinating. So I'm, I'm very interested in actually a, a kind of longer history about Nagasaki, um, and included in that history would be um, you know the, the the story of the bomb, and then the way that they responded to the bomb, and then how Nagasaki is interpreted and remembered uh, today. Um, so that's, that. in some ways, that's the, the gist of the next project that I've begun uh, working on.
1: Oh, so it really grew right out of this one.
0: That's right. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Well, it sounds like a great project. Um, Jim, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed having the opportunity to talk to you about this new book.